This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism, a study in nature and development of spiritual consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. First half of part two, chapter ten. The Unitive Life. What is the Unitive Life? We have referred to it often enough in the course of this inquiry. At last we are face to face with the necessity of defining its nature if we can. Since the normal man knows little about his own true personality, and nothing at all about that of deity, the orthodox description of it as the life in which man's will is united with God does but echo the question in an ampler form and conveys no real meaning to the student's mind. That we should know by instinct its character from within, as we know if we cannot express the character of our own normal human lives, is of course impossible. We deal here with the final triumph of the spirit, the flower of mysticism, humanity's top note, the consummation towards which the contemplative life, with its long slow growth and costly training, has moved from the first. We look at a small but ever-growing group of heroic figures, living at transcendent levels of reality, which we, immersed in the poor life of illusion, cannot attain, breathing an atmosphere whose true quality we cannot even conceive. Here, then, as at so many other points in our study of the spiritual consciousness, we must rely for the greater part of our knowledge upon the direct testimony of the mystics, who alone can tell the character of that more abundant life which they enjoy. Yet we are not wholly dependent on this source of information. It is the peculiarity of the unitive life that it is often lived, in its highest and most perfect forms, in the world, and exhibits its works before the eyes of men. As the law of our bodies is earth to earth, so strangely enough is the law of our souls. The spirit of man having at last come to full consciousness of reality completes the circle of being, and returns to fertilize those levels of existence from which it sprang. Hence the enemies of mysticism, who have easily drawn a congenial moral from the morbid and solitary lives of contemplatives in the earlier and educative stages of the mystic way, are here confronted very often by the disagreeable spectacle of the mystic as a pioneer of humanity, a sharply intuitive and painfully practical person, an artist, a discoverer, a religious or social reformer, a national hero, a great active amongst the saints. By the superhuman nature of that which these persons accomplish, we can gauge something of the supernormal vitality of which they partake. The things done, the victories gained over circumstances by St. Bernard or St. Joan of Arc, by St. Catherine of Siena, St. Ignatius Loyola, St. Teresa, George Fox, are hardly to be explained unless these great spirits had indeed a closer, more intimate, more bracing contact than their fellows with that life which is the light of men. We have, then, these two lines of investigation open to us. First, the comparison and elucidation of that which the mystics tell us concerning their transcendent experience. Secondly, the testimony which is borne by their lives to the existence within them of supernal springs of action, contact set up with deep levels of vital power. 
In the third place, we have such critical machinery as psychology has placed at our disposal. But this, in dealing with these giants of the spirit, must be used with peculiar caution and humility. The unit of life, though so often lived in the world, is never of it. It belongs to another plane of being, moves securely upon levels unrelated to our speech, and hence eludes the measuring powers of humanity. We, from the valley, can only catch a glimpse of the true life of these elect spirits, transfigured upon the mountain. They are far away, breathing another air. We cannot reach them. Yet it is impossible to overestimate their importance for the race. They are our ambassadors to the absolute. They vindicate humanity's claim to the possible and permanent attainment of reality. Bear witness to the practical qualities of the transcendental life. In Eukin's words, they testify to the advent of a triumphing spiritual power, as distinguished from a spirituality which merely lays the foundations of life or struggles to maintain them. To the actually life-enhancing power of the love of God, once the human soul is freely opened to receive it. Coming first to the evidence of the mystics themselves, we find that in their attempts towards describing the unit of life, they have recourse to two main forms of symbolic expression, both very dangerous and liable to be misunderstood, both offering ample opportunity for harsh criticism to hostile investigators of the mystic type. We find also, as we might expect from our previous encounters with the symbols used by contemplatives and ecstatics, that these two forms of expression belong respectively to mystics of the transcendent metaphysical and of the intimate personal type, and that their formulae, if taken alone, appear to contradict one another. 1. The metaphysical mystic, for whom the absolute is impersonal and transcendent, describes his final attainment of that absolute as deification, or the utter transmutation of the self in God. 2. The mystic for whom intimate and personal communion has been the mode under which he best apprehended reality, speaks of the consummation of this communion, its perfect and permanent form, as the spiritual marriage of his soul with God. Obviously, both these terms are but the self's guesses concerning the intrinsic character of a state which it has felt in its wholeness rather than analysed, and bear the same relation to the ineffable realities of that state as our clever theories concerning the nature and meaning of life bear to the vital processes of men. It is worth while to examine them, but we shall not understand them till we have also examined the life which they profess to explain. The language of deification and of spiritual marriage, then, is temperamental language, and is related to subjective experience rather than to objective fact. It describes, on the one hand, the mystic's astonished recognition of a profound change effected in his own personality, the transmutation of his salt, sulphur and mercury into spiritual gold, on the other, the rapturous consummation of his love. Hence, by a comparison of these symbolic reconstructions, by the discovery and isolation of the common factor latent in each, we may perhaps learn something of the fundamental fact which each is trying to portray. Again, the mystics describe certain symptoms either as the necessary preliminaries or as the marks and fruits of the unitive state, and these too may help us to fix its character. The chief, 
in fact, the one essential preliminary is that pure surrender of selfhood or self-naughting which the trials of the dark night tended to produce. This, says Julian of Norwich, is the cause why that no soul is rested till it is naughted of all things that are made. When it is willingly made naught for love to have him that is all, then is it able to receive spiritual rest. Only the thoroughly detached, naughted soul is free, says the mirror of simple souls, and the unitive state is essentially a state of free and filial participation in eternal life. The capital marks of the state itself are, one, a complete absorption in the interests of the infinite, under whatever mode it is apprehended by the self. Two, a consciousness of sharing its strength, acting by its authority, which results in a complete sense of freedom, an invulnerable serenity, and usually urges the self to some form of heroic effort or creative activity. 3. The establishment of the self as a power for life, a centre of energy, an actual parent of spiritual vitality in other men. By assembling these symptoms and examining them, and the lives of those who exhibit them in the light of psychology, we can surely get some news, however fragmentary, concerning the transcendent condition of being which involves these characteristic states and acts. Beyond this even Dante himself could not go. Transhumana significa per verba non siporia. We will then consider the unitive life, one, as it appears from the standpoint of the psychologist, two, as it is described to us by those mystics who use a, the language of deification, b, that of spiritual marriage. Three, finally, we will turn to those who have lived it and try, if we can, to realize it as an organic whole. 1. From the point of view of the pure psychologist, what do the varied phenomena of the unit of life, taken together, seem to represent? He would probably say that they indicate the final and successful establishment of that higher form of consciousness which has been struggling for supremacy during the whole of the mystic way. The deepest, richest levels of human personality have now attained to light and freedom. The self is remade, transformed, has at last unified itself, and with the cessation of stress, power has been liberated for new purposes. The beginning of the mystic life, says Delacroix, introduced into the personal life of the subject a group of states which are distinguished by certain characteristics, and which form, so to speak, a special psychological system. At its turn, it has, as it were, suppressed the ordinary self, and by the development of this system, has established a new personality with a new method of feeling and of action. Its growth results in the transformation of personality. It abolishes the primitive consciousness of selfhood and substitutes for it a wider consciousness, a total disappearance of selfhood in the divine, the substitution of a divine self for the primitive self. We give a philosophic content to this conception if we say further that man, in this unitive state, by this substitution of the divine for the primitive self, has at last risen to true freedom, entered on the fruition of reality. Hence he has opened up new paths for the inflow of that triumphing power which is the very substance of the real. 
has remade his consciousness, and in virtue of this total regeneration, is transplanted into that universal life, which is yet not alien, but our own. From context set up with this universal life, this energetic word of God which nothing can contain, from those deep levels of being to which his shifting, growing personality is fully adapted at last, he draws that amazing strength, that immovable peace, that power of dealing with circumstance, which is one of the most marked characteristics of the unit of life, that secret and permanent personality of a superior type, which gave to the surface self constant and ever more insistent intimations of its existence at every stage of the mystic's growth, his real, eternal self, has now consciously realized its destiny, and begins at last fully to be. In the travail of the dark night it has conquered and invaded the last recalcitrant elements of character. It is no more limited to acts of profound perception, overpowering intuitions of the absolute, no more dependent for its emergence on the psychic states of contemplation and ecstasy. Anima and animus are united. The mystic has at last resolved the Stevensonian paradox, and is not truly two, but truly one. 2. The mystic, I think, would equiesce in these descriptions so far as they go, but he would probably translate them into his own words and gloss them with an explanation which is beyond the power and province of psychology. He would say that his long-sought correspondence with transcendental reality, his union with God, has now been finally established, that his self, though intact, is wholly penetrated, as a sponge by the sea, by the ocean of life and love to which he has attained. I live, yet not I, but God in me. He is conscious that he is now at length cleansed of the last stains of separation, and has become, in a mysterious manner, that which he beholds. In the words of the Sufi poet, the mystic's journey is now prosecuted not only to God, but in God. He has entered the eternal order, attained here and now the state to which the magnet of the universe draws every living thing. Moving through periods of alternate joy and anguish, as his spiritual self woke, stretched, and was tested in the complementary fires of love and pain, he was inwardly conscious that he moved towards a definite objective. So far as he was a great mystic, he was also conscious that this objective was no mere act of knowing, however intense, exultant, and sublime, but a condition of being, fulfilment of that love which impelled him, steadily and inexorably, to his own place. In the image of the alchemists, the fire of love has done its work, the mystic mercury of the wise, that little hidden treasure, that scrap of reality within him, has utterly transmuted the salt and sulphur of his mind and his sense. Even the white stone of illumination, once so dearly cherished, he has resigned to the crucible. Now the great work is accomplished, the last imperfection is gone, and he finds within himself the noble tincture, the gold of spiritual humanity. A. We have said that the mystic of the impersonal type, the seeker of a transcendent absolute, tends to describe the consummation of his quest in the language of deification. The unit of life necessarily means for him, as for all who attain it, something which infinitely transcends the sum total of its symptoms, something which normal men cannot hope to understand.
In it he declares that he partakes directly of the divine nature, enjoys the fruition of reality. Since we only behold that which we are, the doctrine of deification results naturally and logically from this claim. Some may ask, says the author of the Theologia Germanica, what is it to be a partaker of the divine nature, or a godlike, virgated, literally deified, man? Answer. He who is imbued with or illuminated by the eternal or divine light and inflamed or consumed with eternal or divine love, he is a deified man and a partaker of the divine nature. Such a word as deification is not, of course, a scientific term. It is a metaphor, an artistic expression which tries to hint at a transcendent fact utterly beyond the powers of human understanding, and therefore without equivalent in human speech. That fact of which Dante perceived the shadowy preface when he saw the saints as petals of the sympaternal rose. Since we know not the being of God, the mere statement that a soul is transformed in him may convey to us an ecstatic suggestion, but will never give exact information, except, of course, to those rare selves who have experienced these supernal states. Such selves, however, or a large proportion of them, accept this statement as approximately true, whilst the more clear-sighted are careful to qualify it in a sense which excludes pantheistic interpretations and rebuts the accusation that extreme mystics preach the annihilation of the self and regard themselves as co-equal with the deity. They leave us in no doubt that it answers to a definite and normal experience of many souls who attain high levels of spiritual vitality. Its terms are chiefly used by those mystics by whom reality is apprehended as a state or place rather than a person, and who have adopted, in describing the earlier stages of their journey to God, such symbols as those of rebirth or transmutation. The blunt and positive language of these contemplatives concerning deification has aroused more enmity amongst the unmystical than any other of their doctrines or practices. It is, of course, easy, by confining oneself to its surface sense, to call such language blasphemous, and the temptation to do so has seldom been resisted. Yet rightly understood, this doctrine lies at the heart not only of all mysticism, but also of much philosophy and most religion. It pushes their first principles to a logical end. Christian mysticism, says Delacroix with justice, springs from that spontaneous and half-savage longing for deification which all religion contains. Eastern Christianity has always accepted it and expressed it in her rites. The body of God deifies me and feeds me, says Simeon Metaphrestes. It deifies my spirit and it feeds my soul in an incomprehensible manner. The Christian mystics justify this dogma of the deifying of man by exhibiting it as the necessary corollary of the incarnation, the humanizing of God. They can quote the authority of the fathers in support of this argument. He became man that we might be made God, says St. Athanasius. I heard, says St. Augustine, speaking of his pre-converted period, thy voice from on high crying unto me, I am the food of the full grown, grow and then thou shalt feed on me, nor shalt thou change me into thy substance as thou changest the food of thy flesh, but thou shalt be changed into mine. 
Eckhart, therefore, did no more than expand the patristic view when he wrote, Our Lord says to every living soul, I became man for you. If you do not become God for me, you do me wrong. If we are to allow that the mystics have ever attained the object of their quest, I think we must also allow that such attainment involves the transmutation of the self to that state which they call, for want of exact language, deified. The necessity of such transmutation is an implicit of their first position, the law that we behold that which we are, and are that which we behold. Eckhart, in whom the language of deification assumes its most extreme form, justifies it upon this necessity. If, he says, I am to know God directly, I must become completely he and he I, so that this he and this I become and are one I. God, said St. Augustine, is the country of the soul. It's home, says Rusbroek. The mystic in the unitive state is living in and of his native land. No exploring alien, but a returned exile, now wholly identified with it, part of it, yet retaining his personality intact. As none know the spirit of England but the English, and they know it by intuitive participation, by mergence, not by thought, so none but the deified know the secret life of God. This, too, is a knowledge conferred only by participation, by living a life, breathing an atmosphere, union with that same light by which they see, and which they see. It is one of those rights of citizenship which cannot be artificially conferred. Thus it becomes important to ask the mystics what they have to tell us of their life lived upon the bosom of reality, and to receive their reports without prejudice, however hard the sayings they contain. The first thing which emerges from these reports, and from the choice of symbols which we find in them, is that the great mystics are anxious above all things to establish and force on us the truth that by deification they intend no arrogant claim to identification with God, but as it were a transfusion of their selves by his self, an entrance upon a new order of life, so high and so harmonious with reality that it can only be called divine. Over and over again they assure us that personality is not lost, but made more real. When, says St. Augustine, I shall cleave to thee with all my being, then shall I in nothing have pain and labour, and my life shall be a real life, being wholly full of thee. My life shall be a real life, because it is full of thee. The achievement of reality and deification are then one and the same thing. Necessarily so, since we know that only the divine is the real. Mechthild of Magdeburg, and after her Dante, saw deity as a flame or river of fire that filled the universe, and the deified souls of the saints as ardent sparks therein, ablaze with that fire, one thing with it, yet distinct. Rusbroek, too, saw every soul like a live coal, burnt up by God on the heart of his infinite love. Such fire imagery has seemed to many of the mystics a peculiarly exact and suggestive symbol of the transcendent state which they are struggling to describe. No longer confused by the dim cloud of unknowing, they have pierced to its heart, and there found their goal, that uncreated and energizing fire which guided the children of Israel through the night. 
by a deliberate appeal to the parallel of such great impersonal forces, to fire and heat, light, water, air. Mystic writers seem able to bring out a perceived aspect of the Godhead, and of the transfigured soul's participation therein, which no merely personal language, taken alone, can touch. Thus Boehm, trying to describe the union between the word and the soul, says, I give you an earthly similitude of this. Behold a bright flaming piece of iron, which of itself is dark and black, and the fire so penetrateth and shineth through the iron, that it giveth light. Now the iron doth not cease to be, it is iron still, and the source, or property, of the fire retaineth its own propriety. It doth not take the iron into it, but it penetrateth and shineth through the iron, and it is the iron then as well as before, free in itself. And so also is the source or property of the fire. In such a manner is the soul set in the deity. The deity penetrateth through the soul, and dwelleth in the soul, yet the soul doth not comprehend the deity. But the deity comprehendeth the soul, but doth not alter it from being a soul, but only giveth it the divine source, or property, of the majesty. Almost exactly the same image of deification was used, five hundred years before Bowen's day, by Richard of St. Victor, a mystic whom he is hardly likely to have read. When the soul is plunged in the fire of divine love, he says, like iron it first loses its blackness, and then growing to a white heat, it becomes like unto the fire itself. And lastly it grows liquid, and losing its nature, is transmuted into an utterly different quality of being. As the difference between iron that is cold and iron that is hot, he says again, so is the difference between soul and soul, between the tepid soul and the soul made incandescent by divine love. Other contemplatives say that the deified soul is transfigured by the inundations of the uncreated light, that it is like a brand blazing in the furnace, transformed to the likeness of the fire. These souls, says the divine voice to St. Catherine of Siena, thrown into the furnace of my charity, no part of their will remaining outside, but the whole of them being inflamed in me, are like a brand, wholly consumed in the furnace, so that no one can take hold of it to extinguish it, because it has become fire. In the same way no one can seize these souls, or draw them outside of me, because they are made one thing with me through grace, and I never withdraw myself from them by sentiment, as in the case of those whom I am leading on to perfection." For the most subtle and delicate descriptions of the deunitive or deified state, understood as self-loss in the ocean Pacific of God, we must go to the great genius of Rusbroek. He alone, whilst avoiding all its pitfalls, has conveyed the suggestion of its ineffable joys in a measure which seems, as we read, to be beyond all that we had supposed possible to human utterance. Awe and rapture, theological profundity, keen psychological insight, are here tempered by a touching simplicity. We listen to the report of one who has indeed heard the invitation of love, which draws interior souls towards the one, and says, Come home. A humble receptivity, a meek self-naughting, is with Rusbroek, as with all great mystics, the gate of the city of God. Because they have abandoned themselves to God in doing, 
in leaving undone and in suffering, he says of the deified souls, they have steadfast peace and inward joy, consolation and savour, of which the world cannot partake, neither any dissembler nor the man who seeks and means himself more than the glory of God. Moreover, those same inward and enlightened men have before them in their inward seeing, whenever they will, the love of God as something drawing or urging them into the unity. For they see and feel that the Father with the Son through the Holy Ghost embrace each other and all the chosen, and draw themselves back with eternal love into the unity of their nature. Thus the unity is ever drawing to itself, and inviting to itself, everything that has been born of it, either by nature or by grace. And therefore, too, such enlightened men are, with a free spirit, lifted up above reason into a bare and imageless vision, wherein lives the eternal indrawing summons of the divine unity. And, with an imageless and bare understanding, they pass through all works and all exercises, and all things, until they reach the summit of their spirits." There, their bare understanding is drenched through by the eternal brightness, even as the air is drenched through by the sunshine. And the bare, uplifted will is transformed and drenched through by abysmal love, even as iron is by fire. And the bare, uplifted memory feels itself enwrapped and established in an abysmal absence of image. And thereby the created image is united above reason in a threefold way with its eternal image, which is the origin of its being and its life. Yet the creature does not become God, for the union takes place in God through grace and our homeward turning love. And therefore the creature in its inward contemplation feels a distinction and an otherness between itself and God. And though the union is without means, yet the manifold works which God works in heaven and on earth are nevertheless hidden from the Spirit. For though God gives himself as he is with clear discernment, he gives himself in the essence of the soul, where the powers of the soul are simplified above reason, and where, in simplicity, they suffer the transformation of God. There all is full and overflowing, for the Spirit feels itself to be one truth and one richness, and one unity with God. Yet even here there is an essential tending forward, and therein is an essential distinction between the being of the soul and the being of God. And this is the highest and finest distinction which we are able to feel. When love has carried us above and beyond all things, he says in another place, above the light, into the divine dark, there we are wrought and transformed by the eternal word, who is the image of the Father, and as the air is penetrated by the sun, thus we receive in idleness of spirit the incomprehensible light, enfolding us and penetrating us. And this flight is nothing else but an infinite gazing and seeing. We behold that which we are, and we are that which we behold, because our thought, life, and being are uplifted in simplicity, and made one with the truth which is God. Here the personal aspect of the absolute seems to be reduced to a minimum. Yet all that we value in personality, love, action, will, remains unimpaired. We seem caught up to a plane of vision beyond the categories of the human mind, to the contemplation of a something other, our home, our hope, and our passion, the completion of our personality, and the substance of all that is.
such an endless contemplation, such a dwelling within the substance of goodness, truth, and beauty, is the essence of that beatific vision, that participation of eternity, of all things most delightful and desired, of all the things most loved by them who have it, which theology presents to us as the objective of the soul. Those mystics of the metaphysical type, who tend to use these impersonal symbols of place and thing, often see in the unitive life a foretaste of the beatific vision, an entrance here and now into that absolute life within the divine being, which shall be lived by all perfect spirits when they have cast off the limitations of the flesh and re-entered the eternal order for which they were made. For them, in fact, the deified man, in virtue of his genius for transcendental reality, has run ahead of human history, and attained a form of consciousness which other men will only know when earthly life is past. In the Book of Truth, Suso has a beautiful and poetic comparison between the life of the blessed spirits dwelling within the ocean of divine love, and that approximate life which is lived on earth by the mystic who has renounced all selfhood and merged his will in that of the eternal truth. Here we find one of the best of many answers to the ancient but apparently immortal accusation that the mystics teach the total annihilation of personality as the end and object of their quest. Lord, tell me, says the servitor, what remains to a blessed soul which has wholly renounced itself? Truth says, when the good and faithful servant enters into the joy of his Lord, he is inebriated by the riches of the house of God, for he feels in an ineffable degree that which is felt by an inebriated man. He forgets himself, he is no longer conscious of his selfhood, he disappears and loses himself in God, and becomes one spirit with him, as a drop of water which is drowned in a great quantity of wine. For even as such a drop disappears, taking the colour and the taste of wine, so it is with those who are in full possession of blessedness. All human desires are taken from them in an indescribable manner. They are wrapped from themselves and are immersed in the divine will. If it were otherwise, if there remained in the man some human thing that was not absorbed, those words of scripture which say that God must be all in all would be false. His being remains, but in another form, in another glory, and in another power. And all this is the result of entire and complete renunciation. Herein thou shalt find an answer to thy question, for the true renunciation and veritable abandonment of a man to the divine will in the temporal world is an imitation and reduction of that self-abandonment of the blessed of which Scripture speaks. And this imitation approaches its model more or less, according as men are more or less united with God, and become more or less one with God. Remark well that which is said of the blessed. They are stripped of their personal initiative, and changed into another form, another glory, another power. What then is this other form, if it be not the divine nature and the divine being, whereinto they pour themselves, and which pours itself into them, and becomes one thing with them? And what is that other glory, if it be not to be illuminated and made shining in the inaccessible light? What is that other power, if it be not that by means of his union with the divine personality, 
there is given to man a divine strength and a divine power, that he may accomplish all which pertains to his blessedness, and omit all which is contrary thereto. And thus it is that, as has been said, a man comes forth from his selfhood. All the mystics agree that the stripping off of the I, the me, the mine, utter renouncement or self-naughting, self-abandonment to the direction of a larger will, is an imperative condition of the attainment of the unitive life. The temporary denudation of the mind, whereby the contemplative made space for the vision of God, must now be applied to the whole life. Here, they say, there is a final swallowing up of that willful eyehood, that surface individuality which we ordinarily recognize as ourselves. It goes for ever, and something new is established in its room. The self is made part of the mystical body of God, and, humbly taking its place in the corporate life of reality, would fain be to the eternal goodness what his own hand is to a man. That strange hunger and thirst of God for the soul, at once avid and generous, of which they speak in their profoundest passages, here makes its final demand and receives its satisfaction. All that he has, all that he is, he gives. All that we have, all that we are, he takes. The self, they declare, is devoured, immersed in the abyss, sinks into God, who is the deep of deeps. In their efforts towards describing to us this, the supreme mystic act, and the new life to which it gives birth, they are often driven to the use of images which must seem to us grotesque, were it not for the flame which burns behind. As when Rusburet cries, To eat and be eaten, this is union, since his desire is without measure, to be devour of of him does not greatly amaze me. B. At this point we begin to see that the language of deification, taken alone, will not suffice to describe the soul's final experience of reality. The personal and emotional aspect of man's relation with his source is also needed if that which he means by union with God is to be even partially expressed. Hence, even the most transcendental mystic is constantly compelled to fall back on the language of love in the endeavour to express the content of his metaphysical raptures, and forced in the end to acknowledge that the perfect union of lover and beloved cannot be suggested in the precise and arid terms of religious philosophy. Such arid language eludes the most dangerous aspects of divine union, the pantheistic on one hand, the amoristic on the other. But it also fails to express the most splendid state of that amazing experience. It needs some other, more personal and intimate vision to complete it. And this we shall find in the reports of those mystics of the intimate type, to whom the unit of life has meant not self-loss in an essence, but self-fulfillment in the union of heart and will. The extreme form of this kind of apprehension, of course, finds expression in the well-known and heartily abused symbolism of the spiritual marriage between God and the soul a symbolism which goes back to the Orphic mysteries, and thence descended via the Neoplatonists into the stream of Christian tradition. But there are other and less concrete embodiments of it, wholly free from the dangers which are supposed to lurk in erotic imagery of this kind. Thus Jalaluddin, by the use of metaphors which are hardly human, yet charged with passionate feeling, 
tells, no less successfully than the writer of the Song of Songs, the secret of his union in which heart speaks to heart. With thy sweet soul, this soul of mine hath mixed as water doth with wine. Who can the wine and water part, or me and thee, when we combine? Thou art become my greater self, small bounds no more can me confine. Thou hast my being taken on, and shall not I now take on thine? Me thou for ever hast affirmed, that I may ever know thee mine. Thy love has pierced me through and through, its thrill with bone and nerve entwine. I rest a flute laid on thy lips, a lute I on thy breast recline. Breathe deep in me that I may sigh, yet strike my strings, and tears shall shine. What the mystic here desires to tell us is that his new life is not only a free and conscious participation in the life of eternity, a fully established existence on real and transcendental levels, but also the conscious sharing of an inflowing personal life greater than his own, a tightening of the bonds of that companionship which has been growing in intimacy and splendour during the course of the mystic way. This companionship, at once the most actual and most elusive fact of human experience, is utterly beyond the resources of speech. So too are those mysteries of the communion of love, whereby the soul's humble, active, and ever-renewed self-donation becomes the occasion of her glory, and by her love she is made the equal of love, the beggar-maid sharing Kofetua's throne. Thus the anonymous author of The Mirror writes, in one of his most daring passages. I am God, says love, for love is God and God is love. And this soul is God by condition of love, but I am God by nature divine. And this state is hers by righteousness of love, so that this precious beloved of me is learned and led of me without her working. This soul is the eagle that flies high, so right high and yet more high than doth any other bird, for she is feathered with fine love. The simplest expression of the unitive life, the simplest interpretation which we can put on its declarations, is that it is the complete and conscious fulfilment, here and now, of this perfect love. In it certain elect spirits, still in the flesh, fly high and yet more high, till taught and led out of themselves. They become, in the exaggerated language of the mirror, God by condition of love. Home-grown English mysticism tried, as a rule, to express the inexpressible in homelier, more temperate terms than this. I would that thou knew, says the unknown author of the Epistle of Prayer, what manner of working it is that knitteth man's soul to God, and that maketh it one with him in love and accordance of will, after the word of St. Paul, saying thus, Creadherat Deo, unus spiritus est camillo. That is to say, Whoso draweth near to God, as it is by such a reverent affection touched before, he is one spirit with God. That is, though all that God and he be two and seer in kind, nevertheless yet in grace they are so knit together, that they are but one in spirit. And all this is one for one head of love and accordance of will. And in this one head is the marriage made between God and the soul, the which shall never be broken." though all that the heat and the fervour of this work cease for a time, but by a deadly sin. 
in the ghostly feeling of this one head may a loving soul both say and sing if it list this holy word that is written in the book of songs in the bible delectus meus me et ego ili that is my loved unto me and i unto him understanding that god shall be knitted with the ghostly glue of grace on his party and the lovely consent in gladness of spirit on thy party I think no one can deny that the comparison of the bond between the soul and the absolute to ghostly glue, though crude, is wholly innocent. Its appearance in this passage as an alternative to the symbol of wedlock may well check the uncritical enthusiasm of those who hurry to condemn at sight all sexual imagery. That it has seemed to the mystics appropriate and exact is proved by its reappearance in the next century in the work of a greater contemplative. Thou givest me, says Peterson, thy whole self to be mine, whole and undivided, if at least I shall be thine, whole and undivided. And when I shall be thus all thine, even as from everlasting thou hast loved thyself, so from everlasting thou hast loved me. For this means nothing more than that thou enjoyest thyself in me, and that I by thy grace enjoy thee in myself and myself in thee. And when in thee I shall love myself, Nothing else but thee do I love, because thou art in me, and I in thee, glued together as one and the self-same thing, which henceforth and forever cannot be divided. From this kind of language to that of the spiritual marriage, as understood by the pure minds of the mystics, is but a step. They mean by it no rapturous satisfactions, no dubious spiritualizing of earthly ecstasies, but a lifelong bond that shall never be lost or broken, a close personal union of will and of heart between the free self and that fairest in beauty whom it has known in the act of contemplation. The mystic way has been a progress, a growth in love, a deliberate fostering of the inward tendency of the soul towards its source, an eradication of its disorderly tendencies to temporal goods. But the only proper end of love is union, a perfect uniting and coupling together of the lover and the loved into one. It is a unifying principle, the philosophers say, life's mightiest agent upon every plane. Moreover, just as earthly marriage is understood by the moral sense less as a satisfaction of personal desire than as a part of the great process of life, the fusion of two selves for new purposes, so such spiritual marriage brings with it duties and obligations. With the attainment of a new order, the new infusion of vitality, comes a new responsibility, the call to effort and endurance on a new and mighty scale. It is not an act, but a state. Fresh life is imparted, by which our lives are made complete. New creative powers are conferred. The self, lifted to the divine order, is to be an agent of the divine fecundity, an energizing center, a parent of transcendental life. The last perfection, says Aquinas, to supervene upon a thing, is its becoming the cause of other things. While then a creature tends by many ways to the likeness of God, the last way left open to it is to seek the divine likeness by being the cause of other things, according to what the Apostle says, De enim sumus adjutoris. End of first half of part two, chapter ten.